0: I said Everything gonna be alright Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, I A Q Radio. It's Friday, February 26, 2016, and it's my loving wife's birthday. Happy birthday, babe! Good. Uh, today's guest is going to be Mr. Jim Newman. Jim is joining us from out of the Detroit area, and of course, on the uh, line from Studio D back—I'm sorry, Studio C back in McKee's Rocks—is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnik.
1: Hello, everybody. Good day, Joe.
0: Good day, Cliff. And at the controls, we've got John, you got to have faith. Before we get started with this week's interview, let's thank our sponsors. Let's go there first. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufactures feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us.
1: John Don products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at CleanFactsWithAnX.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services.
0: And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
1: Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text them the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Brian Baker, Custom Back Limited, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, for the first correct answer to last week's IAQ Radio trivia question. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, February 26, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas LLC, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal and surface cleaning and decontamination problems. Now for this week's trivia question. What? is the most efficient appliance in your kitchen. Back to you, Joe. Thank
0: you, Cliff, and uh, great to have ideas on board. All right, today's guest is Jim Newman. He's the owner and managing partner uh, partner of Newman Consulting Group. He's very active in many professional organizations. Cliff and I ran into him. Well, actually, Cliff, I, I got stuck in the snow and did not get to see his keynote at the recent Indoor Air Quality Association Uh, meeting in in Orlando, Florida. He's also a trainer for ASHRAE's Energy Standard 90.1 and was one of 16 energy auditors chosen to beta test ASHRAE's Building Energy Quotient. That's a, uh, a program that measures and categorizes energy use in buildings. He's also the chair of Detroit's BOMA Committee on Sustainability. That's the Building Owners and Managers Association, and is a trainer for BOMA's BOMA certification on high-performing buildings. He attended his first indoor air quality seminar way back in 1990, and uh, before, and that was at a, a a BOMA. or no, I'm sorry. It was at the Facility Management Convention in Baltimore. He's an ASHRAE Distinguished Lecturer. He gives seminars internationally on many topics related to construction, including energy conservation. Indoor air quality, sustainability, and green buildings. Let's, we got some music, I think, for Jim.
2: It's not that easy being green.
1: Having to spend each day the color of the leaves.
2: When I think it could be so much nicer in red yellow or gold or something much more colorful like
0: that <laughs> all right jim it's not easy being green i've heard you called the dean of green <laughs> welcome dean yeah, of it's green <laughs> uh, it's good to have you jim welcome to the show pleasure to be here all right let's let's talk a little bit about indoor air quality to start with i know you um you you we talked a little before the show, and you started out more in the mechanical side of things, and uh, you've been doing a lot of green building work and indoor, uh, you know, sustainability type work. But uh, let's talk about indoor air quality for a moment. Have you always been aware of indoor air quality as an issue going back to your days early in the Westinghouse days, or is that something you just, you know, picked up uh, a little after that?
2: No, I've actually been aware of indoor air quality since I was probably about. 10 years old because I had a lot of allergies, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which which were not always, I mean, I I never thought too much about them being indoor air quality issues. It was mostly, you know, what I'm allergic to outside, but uh, have learned since. And actually that did start when I first uh, graduated from college and went to work, uh, learned that a lot of the indoor air issues are not necessarily from outdoor air, but also from what goes on indoors with volatile organic compounds, off-gassing from all kinds of things, and, and such as that.
0: You know, during your presentation at IAQ, I believe you had a slide that you know goes back to the early days of indoor air quality. So we know it's not a new issue, but how far back were you able to go and and find that people were doing things to you know manipulate or manage their building in a way that helped improve the indoor air
2: quality? Actually, a couple of centuries, because one of my very first slides shows a building that had to be an 18th century building with a large propeller fan on the roof that was, was the, the outside air going across it would make it turn. And it was sitting in this building, which, of course, didn't have any glass windows. They were all open windows. And it would be pulling the air from the lower, the lower floors up through the roof that was open at this particular point. So that was causing this cross-ventilation, which was cooling people and probably helping the indoor air quality issues that they had then. And the other slide I had was a pot-bellied stove that our great-grandparents, or depending how old you are, who's listening to this, it might be great-great-grandparents would sit around the country store, around the pot-bellied stove and smoke and talk and that sort of thing. And that was definitely an indoor air quality issue, as a lot of fireplaces are today that, that, don't, uh, that don't ventilate properly or exhaust properly. So it, indoor air quality is definitely not a new issue. It just really became a large issue after the Arab oil embargo of 73 when architects tightened up buildings And we in ASHRAE decided, well, we really don't need 15 CFM per person. Let's cut it way down, because if we reduce the amount of outside air, we'll reduce the amount of heating or cooling we need, and therefore not use as much energy. And that gave rise to all these indoor air quality problems in the late 70s and 80s, well, primarily the 80s, really, because we we didn't build all that many buildings in the mid 70s (laughs) and the tightening up of the buildings and bringing in less outside air led to what was called sick building syndrome or building related illness and sick building syndrome was probably the most common uh, terminology applied to these buildings where people would not feel well while they were at work not because they hated their job but because there really was something wrong with their buildings and would feel better when they went home. And it took uh, everybody a while to figure this out because not everybody goes to the same doctor. So we didn't really, the term indoor air quality or sick building syndrome, actually sick building syndrome came before indoor air quality and that was probably mid to late 80s. And that, that seminar you mentioned that I did in Baltimore for IFMA in 1990, there were very few people in that audience who knew what the three letters IAQ actually stood for, and that's what my entire uh, presentation was all about.
0: You know, that presentation, oh, you did the, I'm sorry, I, I, I thought you had attended, you had given that presentation. I'll fix that and edit I gave that one.
2: All yeah, right. at that time, there hadn't been any, any uh, law, uh, jury trial type lawsuits on IAQ. They came a little bit later and that's something we're going to talk
1: about that yeah absolutely (laughs) cliff
0: you know before (laughs) we do
2: cliff i just
0: want to mention to listeners and jim i'm sure you're aware of this but the first epa document that was specific to indoor air quality came out in 1991 that was uh, building air quality a guide for facility managers and building owners so you were actually doing presentations a little before that jim
2: yeah actually and uh I have that three-ring binder still, and there's there's still a lot of good information in it, and I don't know that anybody's really updated that particular uh, binder of of IAQ information, but we know a lot more today, certainly, than we knew in 1990, or that even the people in EPA knew in 1990.
0: That that actually morphed into um, an online program. That EPA has called IBEAM, uh, the Indoor Air Quality Building edu- Education Assessment Model, I believe, is is what IBEAM stands for. And you're correct; they never, you know, they they put out one little addendum to it um, in a hard copy, but then any other revisions have been uh, web based revisions since then. So um, it's it's an interesting document. You and I agree with you wholeheartedly. It, it had some great, still applicable today, uh, information. Cliff, let me turn it over to you.
1: Okay, um, you know, let's kind of move along a little bit. What findings of the NIOSH problem-building study are notable?
2: Okay, that was a study that was done several years ago by National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, and what they found, which one of your uh, speakers a couple of weeks ago was talking about, they found that actually 50% of the problems in problem-buildings caused by the ventilation system, the HVAC system, they found 28% were a specific indoor contaminant, 11% were a specific outdoor contaminant, and 11% they never could figure out. And, and that's very common with indoor air problems or indoor air quality problems uh, in commercial buildings. It's not like being in an industrial building where something's giving off fumes and you can measure what they are and no, they shouldn't be more than so many parts per billion. In a commercial building, it it can be very difficult to find what the problem is and where it's coming from.
1: Okay, can you let's talk
2: about HVAC
1: systems over time? Uh, what happens to them, and what can be done to prevent it?
2: Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. Uh, And one of the slides that I use in practically all my presentations, and I do speak about a number of different things, is that what happens to HVAC systems as time passes is that green goes to gray. When you first put in this system, it's working fine. The filters are are nice and clean, and and hopefully the ductwork is clean. I say hopefully because it isn't always. But um, especially if the units are run during the winter for some heat or during the summer for some cooling, and they're sanding uh, drywall and not using enough filtration, then uh, the ducts get full of the drywall dust and other things. But what happens is, as soon as you start a system, it starts deteriorating. And the real key is proper operations and maintenance. And, And we talk about reactive maintenance, which is fix it only when it breaks, which is what Unfortunately, a majority of buildings and organizations do uh, versus preventive maintenance, which is grease the bearing if it sounds bad or things like that. And then predictive maintenance, which is the best way to maintain buildings or maintain systems, which is follow the manufacturer's recommendations and do things when they're supposed to be done. Even if the bearing doesn't sound bad, for instance, in a fan or a pump Uh And the manufacturer says if it's a dirty situation, grease it every three months, or if it's clean, you can do every six months or whatever it might be. That's preventive maintenance, and that saves a tremendous amount of aggravation and a lot of time when you have these breakdown fixes
0: you know, Jim. Yeah. There's a you work a lot with um, new construction. I, I, I gather from talking briefly before the show, and a lot of that nowadays is lead, uh, leadership, and energy and environmental design, um, USGBC type buildings, and some of these newer designs include newer mechanical systems. So uh, maybe things that guys aren't you know the old school guys aren't quite used to working on the maintenance guys. What do you see with respect to helping train those guys that are now going to be operating and maintaining that new equipment in some of these uh, newer buildings you're, you're working with?
2: That, that's an excellent question, and we talk about that quite a bit, including not designing control systems that are over the heads of the people who are going to be maintaining the systems or, or, or the buildings, and that's done a lot. I mean, we as engineers, we want to give the owner the best bang for their buck, and quite often we'll give them a system that we know will do a great job for them, but is a little bit too difficult for the operating engineer to understand, and it ends up becoming a manual building. So uh, when we do lead buildings, for instance, uh, the systems have to be commissioned, and what that means is they have to be looked at by a third party to make sure... That they're operating properly, and also to make sure that the manufacturer has provided the operating and maintenance instructions to the owner so they know what they're supposed to be doing. Now, the problem there is people typically don't like to read these long operating and maintenance instructions. And if they're not on a disk, but they're in, in hard copy form and a three ring binder, they get put away and nobody ever looks at them again. Sometimes I'll look at them when there's a problem, but typically you just call a service tech who knows how to take care of it, and that's the way it goes. But we're we're, we're really doing a lot of things with newer equipment that are wonderful. They're, they use less energy. They're easier to operate and maintain, but you still have to know how to do it. And it's so important to have trained people who know how to do that. So it's a matter of, working with the manufacturer to make sure that people know that. And in lead, there's a uh, lead as a point system, and you get an extra point for an, or two for enhanced, what's called enhanced commissioning, where the commissioning agent will come back in about 10 months before the warranties run out, and when some people in the maintenance department may have already left or been changed to another department or another building or what have you, and retrain the people that were originally trained. Because we all know that if we're trained on something, the next day we've already probably forgotten 50% of it, and two days it's 90% if you don't review it or start using it right away. And then it's it, it, it's all downhill after a week. All so right. it's, it's operations and maintenance are probably the most important operation in a building after a building gets started. And we do work with a lot of existing buildings, too. It's not just new.
0: And are, are sometimes these operations and maintenance activities maybe built into the, the building management system so that it it automatically pops up on that guy's computer that, hey, it's time for your three-month bearing, greasing, or whatever the case may be?
2: Yes, there are software algorithms, and there are many organizations out there now that have programs that do exactly this. And what we found is most of them are pretty good. They don't cost very much. Are many people using them? (laughs) They've only really been around in, in good form probably for the last four to five years. So there are not a lot of companies that are using them yet. But it is the way to go. And this whole Internet of Things that we hear a lot about and read a lot about it's going to make a lot of difference in how buildings are maintained, and I think also how well they're maintained in the in the future.
1: You're speaking of maintenance. Can you tell our listeners what biofilm is, and where in an HVAC system biofilm is likely to be a problem?
2: Yeah, that's a good one because it's something that most people don't really think about. <clears throat> you know, in where I don't know if if your listening audience is primarily. Commercial, institutional, industrial buildings are primarily residential. So I'll I'll kind of break this into two parts. In commercial and larger large buildings, there are these air handling systems that you can open a door and you change the filters out and you look at the coils. And you are larger ones that you can actually walk into. In a in a residence, you can't really see the evaporator coil that's sitting typically above the fan or, in front of, or on the discharge side of the fan because it's in a plenum that's all sheet metal with no access door. So you never know how dirty your, your evaporator coil is. But as far as biofilm is concerned, in an HVHC system, it's primarily on the cooling coil. So what is biofilm? Biofilm is really an aggregate of predominantly bacterial cells that are attached to and growing on a surface. And these bacteria excrete a slimy, sticky substance that allows them to adhere to these surfaces, surfaces rather. And the I'm gonna, it's, it's EPS, it stands for extracellular polymeric substance. It increases the resistance of these bacteria in this biofilm to antimicrobial agents, to heat, to cold, to different cleaners. So it's basically microorganisms and a slimy, sticky substance that sticks to a, a coil or some other surface. But typically in an HVAC system, the biofilm is on a coil. There are mold spores on filters. There are mold spores all over the place. Some are good. Some are bad. And a lot of them people get sick from. But the biofilm is primarily on the surface of the coil. Now, the problem with that is that in mechanical equipment rooms, many times there's a water valve that's connected to a garden hose, it's connected to a typical nozzle on a garden hose, and that's what's used to clean the coil. Well, if you look at a coil and you look at it, there's particulate on the face of it or maybe even on the back of it, too, if it's really dirty, <laughs> and this Using a garden hose in cold water typically pushes the particulate further into the coil because most coils in HVAC systems are anywhere from four to eight rows deep. So if you've got a six-row coil or an eight-row coil, that coil is 10 to 12 inches deep. It's very difficult to clean with just straight water spray. So when you mentioned that I was one of 16 energy auditors uh, working on the beta test of this, ASHRAE's building energy quotient labeling program for buildings. And while we were at our three-quarter of a million square foot building in Detroit, it just so happened that somebody was down there cleaning coils in that building, and they said, you guys gotta come down there and see this. And we had a four-man team at that time. We went down and we watched this guy cleaning the six-row deep chilled water coils with high-pressure steam. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, he's got to be bending those fins, high-pressure steam. How do you clean a coil with high-pressure steam and not bend the fins? The fins are real thin, and they're real close together, and this, this, this can't be doing a good job. And yet, after he was done, it was, it was unreal. I mean, those, those, while they were doing it, we watched the fins. They didn't move at all. And we talked to him afterwards. He said, well, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've developed special nozzles, and we know how to do it, and we don't hurt the fins. And I wouldn't have believed that. But he said, now watch this. He says, we've cleaned the dirt and the particulate off the coil. Now we're going to get rid of the biofilm. And he put some uh, something into this boiler that he, that he had that was an environmentally friendly material and started spraying. And what came off those coils was this ugly, black, sticky, goo in pieces that was the biofilm coming off the coils so if you just clean a coil and get the particulate off of it and don't get rid of the biofilm it's going to clog up again very very
0: quickly you know we've um, lined up just for listeners we've lined up a show for later in it'll be in uh, late march actually uh, on this particular topic and uh, some of the new products that are out that help with cleaning coil biofilm. So that's a, a, great, um, a great teaser for that future show, Jim, and uh, we appreciate
2: oh, that. Excellent. Well, uh, that, that's a show that people need to listen to because biofilm is just not thought about enough, and cooling coils aren't looked at enough, or even not necessarily cooling coils, but deep coils, like in, in runaround heat recovery systems, you have a coil in the exhaust and a coil in the supply. We've been on a number of industrial projects that use that type of a system. And those exhaust coils are so dirty that if they're not going to clean them, we tell people, turn them off in the summertime. You're wasting the energy that the pumps have to use to pump the hydronic fluid around through these coils. You're, You're using more energy with the pumps running then you are saving energy in the summertime. Because the energy savings in the summertime are quite a bit less than in the wintertime because the delta T on the coils is so much smaller. So we, we've done that in some cases.
1: Jim, how can cleaning efficiency of HVAC components be
2: quantified? That actually is not the easiest thing in the world to do, but basically what we, what we do is we look at, the volume of air going through the coils before they're cleaned and after they're cleaned. We looked at the static pressure of the coil before and after, and we look at the temperatures, the, the dry bulb temperature and the wet bulb temperature coming in and the dry bulb and wet bulb leaving the coil. The, the other thing that people very seldom think about, I mean, and those are pretty obvious kinds of things, but what people don't think about is if you clean that coil, the heat transfer efficiency goes back to the coil being practically new. And in a dirty coil, that heat transfer efficiency degrades so much that if you've got a large chiller, for instance, you may have to drop the entering water temperature to the coil to 42 degrees or 40 degrees or something like that, rather than 44 or 45 degrees. And for every degree difference, you lose anywhere from one5 to 3% in energy. So if you can clean a coil and raise the water, the, the water temperature entering the coil, leaving the chiller, say, two degrees or three degrees, you've picked up anywhere from six to 10 percent in energy on the chiller itself. So Great point. getting people to do this isn't always the easiest thing in the world, however. Well, but it helps,
0: you know, when you tell people clean your coil because it'll it'll help improve the indoor environment, you know. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. But um if you tell them, well, you might also save some money um with respect to energy consumption, well, you know, you might get a little more uh, a little more of a positive response. Let's let's talk yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and actually that that's not even a might. It's you will save some money. Exactly. Exactly. And right. Uh, right. Let's talk a little bit about ventilation, Jim. Um I didn't okay. get to see your presentation because you know, I got stuck up here in the snow, but Cliff had a a question here, and I, I suspect there was a reason behind it, because it seems like maybe you have a little different take on what is good ventilation. Right, well ASHRAE
2: actually has a standard that's in many, many building codes in the states called Ventilation Standard for Acceptable Air Quality in Buildings, and it's it's an ANSI standard and it's standard 62. We use 62.1 for commercial buildings, three stories and up and we use 62.2 for homes. And the purpose, and I'm gonna read this, the purpose of this standard is to specify minimum ventilation rates and other measures intended to provide IAQ that is acceptable to human occupants and that minimizes adverse health effects. And that's what it's all about. But to simplify it, we, and I talked back in the beginning here when we, when we tightened up buildings and shut down the amount of outside air or reduced the amount of outside air we were handling after the oil embargo of 73, we used to use 15 cubic feet of air per minute per occupant in a building. And we dropped that to about five to, to conserve energy. Well, now we've gotten smarter. Um, because of all these sick buildings. We kind of went back to 15 for a while because that seemed to be a very, very good number. But we've changed it because we realized that there's a lot of buildings where there aren't that many people. And if you go 15 CFM per person, you're really not bringing in enough outside air. So now we've dropped that 15 CFM per person to a lower number, like six or seven or eight, depending on what's going on in the building. But it's also a small percentage of air per square foot. So if it's a larger building with not that many people, it might be 7 CFM per person and 0.06 or 0.07 CFM per square foot. And that gives you a goodly amount of outside air to bring in enough outside air in to keep people relatively comfortable and healthy if it's good outside air.
0: All right. Well, Jim, what we're going to do is we're going to stop and pay some bills here and thank our sponsors. And we'll be back with the second half of our interview with the Dean of Green, Jim Newman, after about 90 seconds. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www.particlesplus.com count on us
1: the indoor air quality association a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research visit them at iaqa.org gray Wolf sensing solutions we use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
0: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com.
1: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products. For restoration and abatement contractor shop, visit them at johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfacts.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services.
0: All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. We got Jim Newman calling out of Detroit. Jim, I want to jump right into um, a little more on mechanical systems and and in this case, the distribution side of things, the air ducts. How you know how important in your mind is the sealing of air ducts and and why is it important? I just I don't see it happen very often unfortunately in in most of the buildings i I visit, and I'm wondering if you have the same experience.
2: Yeah, we absolutely do. and sealing ducts is 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 very, very important for a number of reasons. Some of it's indoor air quality reasons and some of it's the amount of energy that's wasted when ducts leak and what ASHRAE says is that 75% of ducts, 75% leak anywhere from 10 to 25% and typically because of this, you lose 25 to 40% of your heating and air conditioning energy and even new systems have duct leakage and just think about this. Now, let's say you've got a 10,000 CFM air handling unit and you're leaking 15% into the return air plenum or wherever it might be, you're only delivering 8,500 CFM to the space instead of 10,000. So people aren't going to be as comfortable and you're going to, the, the, the heating and cooling is going to have to, the boiler, the chiller or the rooftop unit is going to have to work harder to keep people relatively comfortable. It's, it's, it's energy conservation, it's indoor air quality, it's comfort. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we find when ducts aren't sealed. So, and, and there are easier ways to do this now, and we talked about that, uh, uh, that you can seal them from the inside. There are now systems out there where you can seal a hole or a space in duct work that's up to 5 eighths inches in diameter or 5 eighths inches wide from the inside, rather than having to pull down ceilings and rework ductwork or replace ductwork. It's a whole lot less expensive and does a beautiful job. I've seen it work.
1: Okay. Can you I, tell I us just... a little bit about that system? Is it robotic or, or what?
2: No, actually, it's, a, it's a, like an aerosol that goes down the duct and doesn't attach to the duct at all Unless there's a hole, because sent, it, the, the machine senses the difference between the inside duct pressure and the outside duct pressure, and if there's no difference, the duct is is good, and if there's a difference, there's a hole or or something in the ductwork that's allowing this differential in pressure, and this material that flows. And by the way, this was this was um, developed. By the government, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, I believe it was. Uh, I always get PNNL and LBNL confused, but uh, I think it was LBNL that developed this with DOE. And then they put it out for bid, and this particular company right outside of Dayton, Ohio, won the bid. And they've been doing it for a few years now, and it's just made an amazing difference.
0: I think is it is that Aero. What's the name of the company, Jim? Yeah, it's it's AeroSeal. seal right. Yeah, we've we've uh, yep. we haven't talked much about that. We'll have to uh, talk a little bit more about that in the future. It, it essentially is a, an aerosol aerosol, aerosol that um, right. you know plugs up that gap. It as as it escapes, I guess it uh, you know starts to build a little bit of a seal there. It's almost I, you know I don't, don't want to describe it as a glue, but it's almost like a glue-like product and. Um, yeah, I've heard some, you know, I've heard good things, um, and and Jimmy, you're confirming that. Let, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the IEQ stressors in buildings. What are what are some of the IEQ stressors?
2: Okay, IEQ as opposed to IAQ stands for Indoor Environmental Quality, and that takes into account a lot of things other than just IAQ. For instance, lighting. Uh, a lot of these new, especially LEDs, and they're wonderful, don't get me wrong, <laughs> will we'll put a lot of glare on computer screens if they're not installed properly. Or uh, USCBC, we'd like, we'd like to have a lot of daylight coming into buildings, and the deeper we can make it go, the better off people are. But again, if you're working on a computer screen and you've got a lot of glare on it, that's not very comfortable for you. And we've even seen... If you could see people sitting in cubicles where they've got an umbrella behind them to block the, the sun glare off their computer screen. Hmm. So this happens. So that that's that's a stressor. Uh noise. Either and and we think of noise as being too much noise. But there's also not enough noise. Uh, I was very concerned with this when we built a build uh, one of our first buildings that we built for ourselves for my company. And so I had the rooftop unit manufacturer design a, and build a super quiet rooftop unit, so we wouldn't be able to hear a whole lot of rooftop noise in the building. If it was a single-story building. Well, we moved in there, and I realized I'd made a little bit of a mistake because we could hear everything that went on in the office. We could hear a pin drop, practically. We could hear the typing. We could hear the people talking. And we had, we ended up putting in ambient noise in the ductwork to block it. So we actually made it too quiet. So you you, 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 you got to be kind of where it should be. The other one is, or, or another one is vibration. We've been in buildings, we, we were in a building that was a, uh, a vibration test lab and the rooftop unit was right above the test lab instead of being 10 feet over in the corridor. And they had some real problems in that test lab making it work. Then there's the ergonomic stresses, being in a, in a chair that doesn't fit you or sitting at a computer all day long and not getting up every hour for five minutes. And there's also one of the other IEQ stressors that people don't think about too much but can be a real stressor there are, would be a psychosocial stressor, for instance. Two people in the office don't get along well and they're always fighting with each other. That, that's a stressor to, to, to them and to other people. Or you come in on a Monday morning and you've just had a bad weekend, haven't slept enough, drank too much, had a fight with your significant other, whatever, and you're just grumpy as heck all day long. And, and this is what makes up IEQ, indoor environmental quality, some things we typically
0: don't think about. That's a good point. Uh, Cliff, let me let me get back to you. I know you had a couple
1: good questions. Sure. I do. What defensive strategies do you recommend building owners and operators utilize you know, for risk management reasons?
2: Okay, that's that's a that's a great question and it's very, very important. First of all, is avoid potentially offensive building and maintenance material. I mean just Don't use things that are going to be bad for the people applying them or for the people who are inhaling them, like some of these bleaches that are used in bathrooms. And and when you go to green cleaning, uh, you don't have these smells, but a lot of people complain, well, our bathroom's not clean. It doesn't smell clean anymore because you haven't used this powerful bleach on it. But one of the bigger ones is to, to fully commission those mechanical systems prior to occupancy. Uh, this, because if a system isn't working properly, whether it's the system itself or the controls that are controlling it, people aren't going to be happy. And, and the other thing is from defensive strategy, document everything, because here's what happens, um. When, when there's an IAQ problem, whether it's a real problem or a perceived problem, and we've been involved with, with both because we do some, uh, some environmental work where we're where, looked to, to, to be an advocate, um, the key is to respond immediately. If somebody complains, you want to respond right away because that person is complaining going to talk to somebody else and then you might get two people complaining and two goes to four and four goes to eight before you know it and you have what's called mass psychogenic illness and the real key is that the person who started the complaining they have the perception that something really is wrong whether it is or not but now you've got a whole lot of people thinking there really is something wrong here so you identify the problem if there really is one and make the corrections as soon as you can. Those those are the real keys is to respond immediately. I noticed that's actually
0: the next question we had is, you know, how should the building owner and manager respond when there's an IAQ problem? You know, whether it is real or perceived, I guess the first thing would be to not uh, assume immediately it's perceived. Um, but, you know, is there anything in addition you would add? Well,
2: a lot of the things that should be done is building engineers or facility managers should be walking their buildings and looking for things like as if they were somebody from outside going to move into the building or going to buy the building or what have you. And you want to check for sensor stresses, whether they're auditory or visual or olfactory that people are smelling something um, and, and and ask yourself what well, I want to work or live here you know and, and periodically check the satisfaction of the occupants this shows the people who are in the building that you care about how they feel are they comfortable are they too hot are they too cold when do those things happen <clears throat> I mean Unfortunately, building engineers have to respond to these I'm too hot, I'm too cold complaints way too much. A lot of it is because people aren't getting enough air because maybe the ductwork is leaking or the thermostat in their space isn't calibrated properly or they don't have enough air in their space or they have too much air in their space. A facility manager and a building engineer have to be aware of these kinds of things. And if they do walk the building every now and then, and ask people people will know that they care about them and this makes a lot of difference and and actually reduces a lot of the ieq stressors
0: that's a good point now in the in our show announcement we talked about some of the legal ramifications and we've kind of been going into that a little bit here jim and what i'd like to do is spend a little more time on on the legal ramifications of indoor air quality problems and and to kind of set that up Uh, I believe earlier you mentioned that, you know, prior to the 90s, or maybe I read this in your presentation, there had been very few uh, lawsuits with respect to indoor air quality. Can you kind of just give listeners a little background on your perspective as to where we were back then and how that may have changed since then? Sure. Well, in
2: 1990, when I gave that seminar to IFMA. There hadn't been any jury trials in IAQ cases, to the best of my knowledge. Um, by the mid-1990s, that was a totally different story. There were entire floors of attorneys who were salivating over potential IAQ cases, both on the, on the uh, defense side and on the uh, plaintiff's side. And some of these attorneys and some of these cases were very good cases. In fact, I think it was I think it was EPA in in the early 2000s moved into a building and I'm thinking it was Philadelphia. It's, it's it's a while back and they ended up within a year tearing all the carpeting out of their building because there were so many VOCs off-gassing from either the carpeting or the material under the carpeting or maybe if it was on cement floors it was the that they used to lay the carpeting down. I mean, today, when USGBC started, which was really mid to late 90s and really started gaining some traction in, in the early 2000s, there were very few uh, products like paints, like ceiling tiles, carpeting, drapes, uh, chair material that were low VOC, or no VOC-emitting material. And the early LEED buildings cost a lot more money than the building LEED buildings being built today cost because many of the points are related to indoor air quality and indoor environmental quality uh, in addition to energy and, and recycling and those kinds of things. So if you wanted to buy a quart of, or a gallon rather, of low VOC paint and a gallon of regular paint cost 15 to $18. Low VOC paint would have been over $100. So it became kind of pricey to do that, and the early v- low VOC paints weren't all that good. Today's are terrific. I mean, you can, you can uh, use one coat and really do a heck of a job, and it's low VOC or no VOC. But... um the, the, legal, the potential legal problems, uh, we look at who gets blamed for an IAQ problem. Well, everybody does, the building owner, the architect, the engineer, building contractors the suppliers, building ma- maintenance people, building management people, the real estate broker might get in there, the landlord, the, ten- the employers. Depending on who you are and what kind of an attorney you get and how good that attorney is, they could bring in a lot of people into that case, and um, we we've done some expert witness work uh, <laughs> that's really been absolutely fascinating. The kinds of things that opposing attorneys will bring up that have nothing to do with the IAQ problem, but it, it muddies the waters. So it's much easier not to have litigation than it is to take the time and the effort and the aggravation and the money it costs to be in litigation in an IAQ case. So we tell building owners, you need to do these other things so that you don't get involved in any kind of litigation. Now, we talked about responding right away, but there are times when an owner really needs to seek outside assistance. And those are the kinds of situations where perhaps they can't identify the problem. It's not real obvious. We were called in on one on a building that we had just certified as a lead gold existing building several years ago. And they had had a condensate overflow for a drain pan and a fan call unit in the ceiling. And of course it wet some of the ceiling tile and it wet the wall cause it was, it was right near the wall and they cleaned it up right away. But a week later, somebody started complaining that you know they just didn't feel well because it was in their in their area, and so they called us in and we, we, we called in a uh, company that actually does the testing we don't do that and they tested everything and everything was fine and we wrote a report on it, and they went back to the person now people who were complaining, showed them the report and but they, they Hopped on it immediately, and that, that really is very, very key to being successful when there's a perceived or real IAQ problem.:
0: All right, Jim, we're going to go to what we call the roundup. It'll just be me and Cliff, but this kind of gives listeners a, an idea that we're headed toward the end. <laughs> move' them on, hit 'em up, All right, let's round this up. Cliff, I, you know, sure. <laughs> I think I'll go first if you don't mind on okay. this. Um, sure. I've got one that, you know, in the past, Jim, we've had guests on that um, were not as uh, – positive let's say about green buildings and lead buildings and um, you know implied if not outright said that these buildings can have or or will have in many cases more indoor air quality problems than than even some of the older buildings Uh, how would you respond to that do you you see more litigation with the green buildings as opposed to other buildings or is it uh, maybe overstated
2: well I think it's a little of both actually <clears throat> when When people move into what they think is supposed to be a green building, they have a higher expectation, which they in truth should have now here here's here are, here are some of the problems and, and i I've been involved in some of those discussions actually I'm very aware of uh people who absolutely hate green buildings uh including architects and engineers, but yet most architects think they design relatively green and sustainable buildings. And we have a lot of engineers in ASHRAE who say these are much worse than, like you just said, much worse than older buildings. Well, there's a lot of reasons why they could be, and some of them are that they are bringing in more outside air, perhaps, and the older buildings, people have gotten used to them. They don't have as high an expectation. I mean, we've got uh, a lot of schools, unfortunately, in our Detroit area that have mold on the ceilings and mold on the walls and on and on and on. And people don't like it, but that's the way it is. And you can't have that in what's called a green building or a LEED certified building. And a lot of the things that we do uh, or have done in LEED certified buildings, we want to do the, the, the most efficient, energy-efficient, the most indoor air-quality efficient building that we can do for the owner because they want a green and sustainable building. And quite often, we use new systems or new pieces of equipment that don't perform quite as the manufacturer said they might. That doesn't happen all that often, but it does happen, and um, I know a lot of people will say, well, yeah, I'd like to do that, but I want to be second to be first. I don't want to be the first one using that new system. And I've been involved in some of those new systems, and And luckily with manufacturers who really stand behind them and will work very hard to make sure they're working properly and working correctly. But a lot of the new filtration systems, there are many, many claims made with not a whole lot of testing being done. So you have to look for equipment that's been tested, especially filtration equipment, equipment. Uh, to make sure it really is truly operating the way it's supposed to, and not just the manufacturer's claims and talk to people who've used it. Sometimes uh, what a lot of the complaints about green buildings are is they use more energy than you, Mr. Engineer said they were going to use. And it's like, well, so we go through our energy modeling and we say the, our energy model is fine how are you using the building? Do you have any people that are now 24 seven because you told us the building was gonna be 10 hours a day, five days a week and eight hours on Saturday and that makes 58 hours. And we've looked at some of your electric builds and we agree with you, our energy model doesn't seem to be working too well, but we're thinking you're running the building differently than what you told us. Maybe they have a tenant that moves in that has data servers and they didn't expect that. Or there there are many, many things that happen in buildings to make a LEED-certified building look like it's not doing as well as it could be. Now, from an energy standpoint, a lot of the older buildings might not have as many computers. Uh, we use a lot more energy in plug loads, typically in newer buildings, than we used in older buildings. And plug loads today, even if you've got LED lighting, plug loads today, especially if you've got LED lighting, rather, plug loads become a much higher percentage of the total electric load. And there's a lot more stuff plugged into the wall making up those plug loads today than there was 20 years ago.
1: All right, Cliff,
2: I've got
0: one other one, but I don't know if you want to jump in here or not. I'm sorry, Jim, I didn't mean to cut you off.
1: I might just more of a comment, and I, I would like your uh, opinion on it, Jim. You know, to me, the political aspects of, of green buildings, I find them irritating. Uh, you know, those things that don't have anything to do, you know, with energy. The fact that if outside there's a bicycle rack, you know, that you get credit for that, or you know, we actually Joe and I interviewed a, a very interesting guest. Uh, a couple of years ago, and this guy was, you know, he's in the real estate business. He's made a lot of money. He was really a big believer uh, in, you know, green homes and green buildings, and this guy sought out to build a platinum green home, met all the criteria, and in the end, he didn't get platinum. He got gold because... Uh, Yeah, you know, for political reasons, the house was just too big for him and his family. You know, there was just too many square feet, and you know that's my only concern about is the political. And you know, if you could comment on that, I would appreciate it.
2: Oh, I love to comment on that because bicycle racks. We'll talk about commercial buildings and bicycle racks, and I'll get into homes because we've done two lead platinum homes, and they were not small, but they weren't over ten thousand square feet either. But as far as the bicycle rack argument, it's like, okay, if I'm building a building way out in the boondocks and there's no way that anybody's going to be bicycling to work, then I would agree that getting that point for bicycle rack is not really good. It's an easy point. It's not an expensive point. Typically, if you're going to have showers in your building anyway, Um, but if you're building in a in an urban area. And there are people who can bicycle to work rather than driving to work. It's a good point because we have a lot of buildings with bike racks where people do bike to work and they've got some place to put their bicycles. And, and it's not just the bike rack. You have to have showers for people to shower in, whether they really shower or not. Typically, they don't because they're only drive you know, riding their bikes a couple of miles and not working up a big sweat. But uh, that's my comment relative to bike racks. It was really meant to cut down on the greenhouse gas emissions from using other types of mechanical transportation. What, what about, the, first, what about the, size? the size? The size of what? The size, size of the home? The size of the home. Yeah, I was just going to get to that. <clears throat> Typically, USCBC figures 2,400 square feet for four bedrooms. That's really all you should need. And for every 300 square feet, more than that, you lose a point. So these two homes that we got lead platinum on, one was, I think, 6,800 square feet and one was closer to 8,000. So they started off with negative 20-plus points. And we had to pick up 20 points for them even to get to zero, and yet they, they, they got the platinum. And what USGBC says, how can a home be considered sustainable if you're building a six or 8,000 square foot home for two people or three people or four people, uh, it's not really what we consider sustainable. So we're going to give you, you know, 20 points or so. So you're not going to get platinum. Well, these two homes were so good with solar panels and recycled material and on and on and on. And they were both ground source heat pump, uh, uh projects also. That they ended up with platinum, but but that's that's the key point relative to a large size home. USGBC doesn't consider a home that's two, three, four times as large as it really needs to be, and needs becomes a very personal kind of a thing. If you do a lot of entertainment, of large groups, and you have a, an indoor swimming pool in your home, you're not going to build a 2,400 square foot home. You can't. Uh, and, um, but that's, that's what happened with this fellow that you're talking about. He probably built a very large home and didn't do just quite enough other things to get enough points to be platinum.
1: According to him, he did everything. And I'm going to, I'm going to look it up and I'll, I'll actually send you the interview. I mean, it was crazy. This home was in Florida. I remember what they were doing with, you know, they, they captured all the rainwater, the, all the stuff was, I mean, it was just over, it was just over the top. And money really was not an issue. You know, he he could afford to do it, and you know, he tried to do it, and I think that this supposedly might have been the first one, you know, to try to seek platinum, and you know, for one okay. reason or another, uh, he didn't get it. But I'll dig it out, and yeah, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll I, 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 I I hear that. it, and, and I'll, I'll also put the information on the blog in case, you know, and the listeners are interested in looking for it, so...
2: Generally? Okay, my, my my guess would be that it's probably over 10,000 square feet, and he probably might have only had five or six bedrooms. You know, if you've got 14 kids and you build a 10,000-square-foot house and you have 18 bedrooms or 20 bedrooms because you have people coming down and visiting, then you could probably get platinum. But if you build 10,000 square feet and you've only got two people in the house and maybe or even four... And you've got six bedrooms and ten thousand square feet. The likelihood of getting platinum is going to be very, very slim.
0: Jim, let me yeah. let me finish up with one more question. I know we're running a little over. I don't know how quick you can answer this one, but I've always um, looked at these, you know, some of the the green buildings, and um, I wonder oh. where the trade-off is with respect to the amount of glass and the, you know, you know USGBC wants lighting within the building, which, you know, I understand. I think that's important. But when you do that, you trade off energy efficiency as well. I was wondering if you could comment on that a little bit.
2: Sure. And actually, the new ASHRAE standard, 90.1, which is a standard on energy, <clears throat> says you can't have more than 40% glass in the walls.
0: And all the walls are just these, in...
2: These, yeah, these okay. floor-to-ceiling uh, windows are going to be a thing of the past. Now, that being said, you don't really need floor-to-ceiling windows in a lead building to bring a lot of daylight into the into the building. You have, you have <clears throat> sun louvers on the outside or the inside that can bring this, the light and the sun further into the building, and the, the, the windows don't need a spark. At the floor, they can start 30 inches above the floor, and people have a very good view of the outside. And this is what this is going to be the new design of buildings in the years to come. There will be very few panel wall glass buildings built uh, in the future. Now, that being said, there are a lot of things happening relative to the R value of glass. And there are windows that are now made that rather than being in a in a, in a, um, a double glass window, the R value is typically about 3. The resistance value is typically about 3 where you might have 19 in the walls. So it's, it is quite a difference, as you said. But we are getting to the point where there are going to be inside storm windows and even outside windows built that have our values up to 10 and 12 and 13 and maybe even 14 in the not-too-distant future. And, of course, we've got electrochromic glass where you can have the glass shading uh, automatically or manually so that you're not having as much heat come into the building. So there, there there are so many things going on today, it's hard to predict what the way we're going to be building buildings 10 years from now.
0: I think that's a good point. That uh, it is hard to predict, Jim. And I, what I'd like to do, and we always do before we go, first, thank you. Uh, we really appreciate having you on. Appreciate your openness and uh, willingness to take, you know, any question. That's that's always, um, you know, very. Uh, we're happy to see that. Now, the other thing we like to do, though, is if there's anything you'd like to add, anything we missed before we go, let's uh, let's hear what you've got.
2: Okay, the only, the only thing that I'd really like to say is the real key to having a building that is operating most efficiently and relatively sustainably is, is that the, the maintenance is actually the most important thing. If you don't have proper maintenance and proper operation, of your building, whether it's a building or whether it's a home, actually. I mean, we, we've gotten into homes where people just don't change the filters. They don't think about it. And, you know, if some, eventually their evaporator coil freezes and they have to call a service tech, and the service tech takes a look at their filter and says, well, you know, we really need to look at this about every three months and maybe change it once in a while because they're just not getting enough air over the coil because... The filter is so dirty, but proper operations and maintenance is the real key to being comfortable in a building and having the building operate most efficiently. Most efficiently means using the least amount of energy, typically. So that's, that's what I would, I would like to kind of end with,
0: if you will. Well, we appreciate that, Jim, and I greatly appreciate you joining us and hope we can get you back in the future. And um, next time you speak, I hope I can make it in time to
2: sit in on your presentation. Well, I would look forward to that. In fact, I'm going to be speaking at the High Performance Building Convention in Fort Worth on, on May 3rd. So, if you happen to be in the Texas area, come on down. You
0: never know. <laughs> All right. Well, this <laughs> is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest, the Dean of Green, Jim Newman. Of course, I uh, want to. Oh, by the way, next week we've already got uh, Kurt Johnson lined up. Kurt is the. I think he's the past president of the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council. We're going to uh, talk to him about ventilation. Kurt's a big ventilation guy. We're going to spend a little more time on ventilation next week and talk a little bit about some of the activities that uh, he's been involved with with the council, and they have a conference coming up in uh, April that I'll be attending, and uh, we'll be doing a show. I don't know if we'll be live from there or if we'll uh, bring some of their folks on uh, for the show that week, but look forward to talking to Curt next week. Uh, This is Radio Joe saying thanks again to Jim Newman, of course to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, as always. Great.
1: Great Probably to be with you. to Florida,
0: Joe. Thank you so much. Uh, of course, uh, to John, you got to have faith at the controls. Another job. another No glitches again, John. Looking good. Uh, most importantly to our growing group of loyal listeners, those downloads are, are going great again. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio.